God, our Father, Lord, we praise you this day. We glorify your name and we thank you, Lord, for our life and our breath and everything that you give us. We recognize today that you are the creator of all things. That, Lord, you are the sustainer of all things. That you hold the planets in their orbit. God, that you hold the whole world in your hands. Even uh, you raise up and tear down nations as you see fit. Lord, you rule over the earth because it is yours. In fact, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the earth and all they that dwell therein. God, mankind belongs to you. He is your creation and you made him for your purposes. And so, God, today we acknowledge that great truth and we ask that you would strengthen our faith that we might live lives that please you. That, Lord, in every respect, uh, our behavior would, would glorify you and, and would be pleasing in your sight. And, uh, Lord, it's so difficult for us, uh, having fallen into sin and darkness. And, and yet, God, you've saved us out of that darkness and you've caused your Holy Spirit to live in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ask, God, that you would help our faith, cause us to grow. Cause us to move beyond the the darkness that we were once in and to come more and more progressively into your marvelous light. Lord, that we might acknowledge your lordship in our life every day and that, Lord, we would uh, uh, just begin to trust in and rely upon you and not to lean upon our own understanding, but acknowledge you in all of our ways. And, and Lord, we thank you for the promise that you give us that uh, for those who will hear you and, and follow you, that, Lord, you will bless us. And so we thank you for the good blessing that you give us. And, and Lord, that we even live in your favor. And Father, we thank you for the peace and the joy that you give us in Christ. Oh, Lord, we ask today as we look into your word that you would help us to see uh, more clearly. Uh, what you have laid out for us, God, the, the calling that we have in Christ, the uh, help us to see clearly what you commend in the Thessalonians' faith and in their church. God, help it to live in our lives. May we also follow their example of faith and repentance. And God, we just ask that uh, as we look into your word today, that you would show us the power that is there, that you would transform us by it. And Father, we, we just ask that you would uh, um, just continue to strengthen us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to freely proclaim your word in this place. And we ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So. I also want to <clears throat> mention this book that I have out there on the back table again, The Blessed Hope. I asked Carissa how many copies of this we had given out. She, she said she, she thought it was at least 27, maybe 37. She wasn't clear. So I'm encouraged that there's so many of you actually reading this book. How many of you actually started to read this book? Wow, that's good. So I want to mention this thing. As you're reading through this book, if you have questions, please feel free to email me or call me or uh, grab me by the shirt collar sometime. 
and uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer your questions, although I trust that what's presented in this book is very clear. It's, it's not in any way ambiguous, but uh, it's written in a very simple and concise manner, and the things that he is saying there are, are laid out in a very easy-to-understand manner. If, um, if you're new to the study of eschatology uh, and you're going to be attending the class for the next several months, you should get this book and read it. It's really going to be a help for you um, because he deals with a lot of New Testament texts that deal with the pertinent issues of eschatology. So um, really good book here. I just want to commend it to you again. And I also want to say, again, if you have any questions, please feel free to, to email me or to call me. I'd be happy to answer those for you. The water's going to get real deep real fast when we start talking about end times, okay? It's just a really complex subject, and I want you just to be as prepared as you can so that at least you can follow along, for the most part, with the things that we're talking about, okay? And, uh, you know... <clears throat> I know there's a lot of hype that's made of biblical prophecy on the television and so on. And, and quite frankly, there's a lot of garbage that gets taught uh, in that public forum about Bible prophecy. And that's kind of unfortunate because it kind of gives Bible prophecy a, um, maybe a bad smell. And uh, <clears throat> really, it shouldn't be that way at all because it's the Word of God. Amen. And it's, 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 it's the truth that God has revealed about how the end of the world is going to unfold. And what could be more pertinent to our lives? What could be more important to the way that we live? And, and not only that, but to, to our hope in Christ, which extends beyond the grave and beyond this life. Amen? And so it's an extremely important issue. And, and quite frankly, if you're really interested in learning what the Bible has to say about the end times, although it can be rather complex, you can actually learn it. It's not something that's so far off you have to be a scholar to, to grab a hold of it. The basic truths are really clear in the scripture, and uh, I hope to be able to point those out for you. But I also want to engender your, your thirst for knowing these things in the Bible. Because uh, what else do we live for as Christians, amen? But for the word of God and for growing in our relationship and our knowledge of God, amen? And so uh, I want to encourage you that the study of end times is, is not beyond our grasp. It certainly wasn't even for the uh, plain fishermen who preached it to us in the first place, amen? And so, uh, so surely it's not beyond our grasp. So I want to encourage you in that. That brings us back to our study here in 1 Thessalonians. We have gotten into verse 5 of chapter 1. And uh, last week we left off uh, in verse 5. And um, I just want to remind you just real quick about the context <laughs> of the Thessalonian church. Remember that uh, Paul had come through Thessalonica and preached the gospel in the synagogue there for about three weeks. And just in that short period of time, uh, the Thessalonian church was born. They believed Paul's message. They believed Paul's gospel. He made disciples there for about four weeks, we can say safely. 
And then he was run out of town by hostile Jews and by a hostile mob. And um, <clears throat> he left behind this very infant church. He left behind a church that had only been discipled for about four weeks. And, of course, he went on his way, and they chased him halfway across the province of Macedonia. And uh, he was caused to flee even from the city of Berea. And uh, he fled from there to Athens. And it was about three or four months later, we don't know exactly how long, that uh, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how that young church had fared. When he got there, he found a church that was on fire for God. And in this furnace of affliction, that is this very hostile Thessalonican environment, this little church was thriving. And uh, Paul was very encouraged by that. And so he, um, after Timothy visits them and kind of gets a report of their faith and a list of questions that they have for Paul, he writes back, he writes to them uh, to encourage them in their faith and in their existing practice, which he is commending them for in the entire first chapter of the letter. So that's the context of of, uh, of uh, First and Second Thessalonians. And so a lot of the doctrinal issues that Paul is dealing with in both letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are are in response to questions that they have. Um, there are some things that were lacking in their understanding. And so they, they ask him some questions, and, and we'll see as, as this unfolds how he's answering some of their concerns. <clears throat> Specifically, they had quite a few concerns about the end times. Because they were facing so much tribulation, and because there were people that were um, reporting false information to them about the fact that they had already entered into the day of the Lord and that this severe persecution that was taking place was a result of God's judgment, Paul has to write and kind of clear up their whole understanding of the end times. And that's where we get this rich exposition from Paul about the end times. There's no other letters that Paul writes, which, of course, he wrote half of the New Testament, where he gives uh, any kind of a treatment of the doctrines of, of the end times. And so it's because of these circumstances that we actually have what we have from Paul here in these letters. So with that, that's kind of the context of, uh, of, the, of the Thessalonian letters. And uh, we come to verse 5, which, which says, now, now you remember b- building up to this place, Paul was in verse 4 uh, saying to the Thessalonians that he was sure that God had chosen them for salvation. And he was sure on the basis of the fact that um, they were a church that had, in verse 2 and 3, a working faith, a laboring love, and a steadfast hope. He could look at their life, and he could see that they'd been changed. And he wasn't even there to help them along. He was basically run out of town, and, and, and yet what remained behind was this healthy, on-fire church. And so he was saying, this is evidence that you folks are real Christians. This is evidence that you're not just mere professors but that you are, in fact, true Christians. Amen? You see that? Because we know a true Christian by what? By their fruit, by the product that comes from their life. Amen? 
And so when, when Paul looked back and he saw the product that was coming from this Thessalonian church, he was saying, those are the real thing. Those are genuine Christians, right? They had a working faith, a laboring love, a steadfast hope. You understand? The Thessalonians had a sure conviction of the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. And they were, the Bible says, waiting for Jesus from heaven. And uh, this, of course, is a mark of all evangelical Christians. We have a sure hope that Jesus is coming soon, right? And he's going to fix this broken place. Amen? Amen. Not only that, he's going to fix us because we're broke too, (laughs) right? And, and uh, even, even though still, even after we're saved, we're hounded by the temptation to sin and we're hounded by this evil nature that lives inside of us, we have the hope that one day, right, God is going to completely transform us so that we're no longer subject to the temptations of sin. Instead, this mortal, this being that can die, is going to be transformed to become immortal. Amen? So is the hope of every true Christian. Right. That we are looking eagerly to that day when God is going to redeem all things, even as he has redeemed our soul. Amen. And the, the Holy Spirit that he's put in our hearts now, the peace, the joy, the love, the kindness, the patience that we experience from the depth of our heart. That's there uh, from the spirit of God living within us. Right. That's just a down payment telling us that the kingdom of God is coming soon and giving us a foretaste of glory divine. Amen? You with me? And so this is our hope. This hope is steadfast. And uh, so it's with that that Paul says in verse 4 that because you people are like this, he says, I know God has chosen you for salvation. Right? Well, then he goes on in verses 5 through 10 explaining with more evidence how he knows this to be true. And he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so he talks about how he knows they're saved because the gospel came to him not only in word, not only did they hear the true gospel from Paul, right? but that it came with power and with full conviction, he says. And, and uh, what Paul is describing is how when they received the word, they were changed. They were transformed. It came with a power that changed their life. And of course, this is what we talked about at, at length last week. He says that the gospel came in power. And you know, this is the thing, that the word of God is powerful. Amen. And when God sends it out, it accomplishes exactly what he sent it to accomplish. Namely, right, that us dead sinners might be born again to a living hope in Christ by the Spirit of God. Amen? And when that born again process happens, of course, we call it regeneration, right? When regeneration happens in the life of of someone, it is a powerful transforming work. It changes us on the inside, which begins to affect the outside more and more as time goes on, right? Nevertheless, it's a powerful work. And Paul says here that this power happened in the Thessalonians. He says, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
And uh, if you will, we talked about this also last week, that this conviction is a powerful work of God's spirit whereby he causes sorrow over sin and a longing for reconciliation with God. This conviction that comes by the Holy Spirit causes us to sorrow, to mourn over our sin. Because what happens in regeneration is God opens our eyes to see that we've sinned against him. Not only have we sinned against him, but we're in a desperate state. Because we've sinned against him, we are a pitiful being, right? Simply waiting for that day when we're going to die and face the judgment of God. And, and without some kind of remedy for that sin, the judgment of God for us is going to be death. It's going to be forever separation from God and his goodness, right? And so when God opens our eyes to this truth, we recognize <clears throat> what a pitiful creature we are and, and how without hope that we are. What shall we do when we stand before holy God with a mountain full of sins to present to him as the fruit of our life? What shall we do, right? Well, this is part of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He points out to us this desperate state that we're in as sinners. But with it, he always gives us the good news of the gospel, which is that Jesus died for us, that he died in our place, that the, the chastisement that brought us peace, he bore in his body on the tree, right? That he was pierced through for our transgressions, right? That he was wounded for our iniquities. That Jesus came and died as a sacrifice in place of, of, of us having to die. He died for us. Amen? And whenever you hear that term vicarious, when you, when you read in somebody's statement of faith that we believe in the vicarious atoning death of Christ. Vicarious means in our place. He died for us. He's a substitute. And so we call it substitutionary atonement. The work of Christ is a substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus died as a substitute in our place so that we don't have to die. And in fact, the Bible tells us that that work of substitutionary atonement of Christ was so complete that it completely washes us clean and sanctifies us so that God himself can come to live inside of us we now become the very temple of the living God. The work of Christ in atoning for our sins is so complete that now the holy God can live inside of us when that atonement is applied to us. Okay, And of course, this is the other part of the gospel, that <clears throat> the Holy Spirit brings the, the, uh, the work of Christ and he applies it to our life right, through faith and repentance. And this is the result of the conviction that comes, the powerful conviction that comes in the Holy Spirit when the gospel is preached. The result of it is faith and repentance. It changes us. It transforms us. When the gospel comes in power and shows us our sin and shows us our need for a Savior and shows us that God has provided Christ as a Savior, he also gives us this ability to turn our back on our sins. And to turn to him for righteousness. Okay? This is what repentance and faith are. And God, with this conviction of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, listen, gives us faith to trust Christ for righteousness. And, and so we receive this longing then 
to have Christ. And we receive a disdain and a hatred for our sins. And this is the powerful convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that when it comes, it changes us. And that's the power of the working of the Spirit of God. It's an inner thing that happens in the soul of men and women. Amen? And it's, it's a thing that happens with every true Christian. If you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, you have experienced the things I just described. If you have not experienced the things I just described, you really need to go to God and read in his word and find out what it is that you're lacking. Namely, I would suggest that you need this revelation from God very desperately, that you need to be saved, and that Christ is the provision for sins, and that if you trust him, he will give to you this transforming work that will come into your heart and into your soul and change you, and will cause your allegiance to be with him, and will cause your disdain and your hatred to be towards your old former life of sin. And if you've been wondering why all your life you can never seem to get the upper hand on sin, it's probably because you've never been born again. Because once somebody is born again, you do get the upper hand on sin, and sin begins to progressively be uh, destroyed in your life by the power of the, of the wonder-working power of the Spirit of God. Are you with me? And this is what Christian sanctification is, Right? We're growing in the knowledge of God. We're growing in our love for God and for Christ. We're growing in the ability to overcome sin and temptation, right? And we're growing in the ability to become more and more like Christ and like God as we grow in our faith. That's why when we come together in the church, the whole goal and purpose of what we're doing here is seeking to grow. It's seeking to become more and more like Christ and more and more like God. We have we, we, because we hate sin so much, we want to learn how to make war with it. Amen? And we want to learn how to be people of love and kindness and peace and joy. And this is the message we preach, even though it's a war that's going on inside our own hearts. Amen? You with me? This is the powerful, convicting work of the Holy Spirit that the Thessalonian church had experienced. And <clears throat> this is what Paul meant when he said, Our gospel didn't just come to you in word only. But it came with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what? They were changed. They were changed, and this is what the result looked like. Repentance and faith. They turned their back on their old former life of pagan idolatry, and they trusted in Jesus for their righteousness before God, so much so that they began to serve him. Right? Which is borne out here in the next few verses. But Paul says here to these Thessalonians that not only did the gospel come in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, he says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, this transforming power that came to you, it came to you through us. And we are examples of this transforming power. Paul is saying, look at our life, our being Paul and Silas and Timothy. Look at us apostles, right? Here we are, hundreds of miles from our home, <laughs> preaching this message that powerfully changed your life and powerfully changed your hearts, right? And he says, here we are doing this, not for our sake, 
Because every city we show up in, we get a boot in our rear end. You with me? And Paul's saying, we're not doing this for the sake of affliction, right? Nobody enjoys that. We're doing this for your sake, he says. Look at our lives. We are examples of this full conviction. We're examples of this power, he says, that that, uh, you see what kind of men we were. Paul here recognizes for them that he and Silas and Timothy were in fact examples of this transforming power, having demonstrated lives in which the power of God was plainly evident. There are many professing Christians in the world, but fewer who actually demonstrate lives that have been so powerfully transformed by the gospel and the spirit so that it is evident to all and so that others know what kind of men we prove to be among you. The power and conviction of these apostles' gospel was plainly evident in their life, and this was proved among the Thessalonians by their very presence. In other words, the fact that these apostles are there in Thessalonica is proof, positive, that they've been changed by the power of God. The very work of their ministry out being apostolic missionaries to the Gentile world is proof positive that they were practicing what they preached. And what they preached did actually change people's lives. Amen? Think of how Paul was radically changed when when he was born again. Amen? And, you know, I mean, it couldn't be more clearly seen than it is in the life of Paul. One day, he's on his high horse riding to Damascus to kill Christians. Right? The next day, he's on his knees in Damascus. Right? with his eyes having been blinded by the glory of Christ, right? Repenting of his sins and begging of the Lord, Master, what is it that you will have me to do? Amen? And so Paul was, if you will, knocked off his high horse, right? By the power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you will, Paul is just a a tremendous example of what Christian conversion really is. It's a... It's a hyperbole. <laughs> it's, a, it's a maximum expression, if you will, of what uh, Christian conversion really is. Amen? Well, <clears throat> consider that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been so changed by, the God, by God that they were now devoting their life to preaching the gospel in places like Thessalonica, literally hundreds of miles from their homes, and in what were many times very hostile circumstances. All of this they did at great personal cost, but for the sake of their hearers, as he states, for your sake. You see, Paul says, you know, here we were as examples of the message that we're preaching to you, and we weren't just doing that for our own good. We weren't doing that for the fame of our name, (laughs) right? We were doing this for your sake. We were doing this so that you could hear the message and share in the joy. Amen? All of this was at great personal cost. Think about this. Think about the cost that these disciples were paying, having given their entire life over to Christ. And, of course, if you read about the things that that Paul faced as a missionary, it's a wonder that the man could continue to endure. Uh, You can read in 2 Corinthians 6 of tremendous sufferings on the part of Paul. And... um, Nevertheless, nothing was going to turn him away. Even the prophets would come and they'd tell Paul, Paul, 
real soon, man. You 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 head you head toward Jerusalem, and guess what's going to happen? You know, you're going to be bound. You're going to be hurt. You're 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 uh, you're you're uh, you're ultimately going to be killed, right? And Paul says, uh, I don't count my life dear. He says, what I count dear is the calling that I have from Christ to preach the gospel. And uh, and so how how steadfast was Paul's hope, right? That in, re, in, in regardless of the most severe persecutions that a man could face for being a witness for Christ, Paul uh, set his face like a flint to do what Christ had called him to do. Amen? And he does this. Paul says, I, 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 I preach the gospel for the sake of the elect. Paul says, I, I do this for the people of God, that they might be called out of darkness and that they might share in the joy and in the ministry that God has planned for them. The apostles' ministry was an amazing story as they would move from city to city and province to province, preaching the good news that God was now forgiving sin based on repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that this ministry was now calling out God's church from every tribe and people. This was an amazing display of selfless sacrifice on the part of the apostles who were so devoted in love to the church that they would endure much opposition and at great peril just to tell people about the great things God has done in Christ. Paul talks a little bit about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says there, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. You see what Paul says? He says um, that I endure all this hardship and even imprisonment for the sake of those who are chosen. Why? So that they may obtain salvation and what? With it eternal glory. Paul is committed to the church so that she will experience in the glory of Christ. Paul is committed to the church. He has given up his life. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of Jesus' call to follow him. When Jesus says, if any man would follow me, right, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross. Listen, take up his cross. Take up the instrument of his own death and follow me. Right? And he who desires to save his life shall lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake shall shall save it. Amen? So think about this in terms of what an example Paul is of this. Are you with me? He's lost his life. <laughs> you know, all the credentials he had as a, as a Pharisee, as a Jew of Jews, <laughs> right? Dashed to pieces. Now he's one of those Christians, right? Hated by the Jews. Literally hated by the Jews. As a matter of fact, had God not protected him when he finally got to Jerusalem, they'd have torn him limb to limb, right? But because he was a Roman citizen, 
he he was due certain certain rights. And even when they had him in captivity, they were plotting to murder him and kill him. You know, when they took him from Jerusalem down to uh, uh, Caesarea on the coast, there was a plot of the Jews. They they were going to ambush the the, uh, the the train and and uh, put it to him. And uh, I mean, you know, they just hated Paul. Listen, everything that Paul lived his life for and strived for, he gave up to follow Christ. And, and then he committed his whole life to going out and preaching this gospel. Paul took up his cross, denied himself, and followed Jesus even to the losing of his life. Which, by the way, Paul eventually lost his life. He lost his head, right, for the witness and the testimony of Christ. And what an example he is of this. Well, in Paul, in commending the Thessalonians, in verse 6, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now think about how these Thessalonians, here they are, this little infant church, left behind in this hostile Thessalonica. All of a sudden, man, they got the gospel. They're on fire. They go out preaching the gospel to the entire Greco-Roman world. Okay? Now, think about what Paul means when he says, you became imitators of us. You get the picture? Man, They see Paul and Silas and Timothy come through, give them this message. It transforms their life. And and Paul Paul tells them, you know what? You better take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus. (laughs) Right? Well, they figure, well, this is what Christians do. Man, they take up their cross and they go out and they do what Jesus did. They tell people the gospel. Right? Even if it means it's going to cost them everything they have, including their life. Right? And so what did they do? In the face of much opposition, they received the word with much joy, and they do what? They imitate Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they go out and they preach the gospel, right? This is, a, this is an amazing thing. It's like simple childlike obedience. This Thessalonian church, they got it. <laughs> and I keep wondering, how come I can't get it? Are you with me? Why is it that they had the courage to do what they did and I don't have the courage to do what they did? I don't know about you, but to me that's a serious conviction as I go through this portion of the Word of God and I I really think about what's being said here. And I'd like you to think about that. I'd like you to think about why is it that we shrink back from telling people the good news about Christ. If it is such good news that it's transformed our life and we've received it with much joy, it's changed everything about who we are. In fact, we're even prepared to die for it. Amen? Amen. Yet it seems that we can't live for it. Are you with me? And so, if you will, I'd like for you to consider that as we continue to look a little deeper into this. He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Another reason why Paul knew they were elect, they not only affirmed the truth of the gospel by their profession, but it was accompanied by changed lives. They became imitators of the apostles who had become imitators of Christ. 
And so this is the case for all true Christians. We not only turn our back on the dead idols of our former life, but we now serve the living God. Think about this. You know, it's one thing to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for sins, and and through faith in him we can be reconciled to God and receive a righteousness from God that's not our own so that we can be justified in the presence of God. That's one thing. But think about how, as a result of that faith, we are to now serve God. And, and I'd like for you to think for a minute about how you personally serve God. Think about that. Because that is the inevitable result of true faith. Okay? And so, so you, what we should see in our life are the marks of the elect. What we should see, you know, when we look at this Thessalonian church, what do we see? We see examples of people's lives who've been changed. And, and so I have this as a personal challenge for you. Can we see the marks of the elect in your life so much so that when we see what happened in your conversion, that you turned from the dead idols of your former life to serve the living and true God? How is it that you serve God? What is it that you practically put your hands to or your mouth to or your eyes to? Or your mind to, right? In which you're serving God. Think about that. I can't answer that question, but you can. And I want to encourage you to become more and more involved in the service of God. So much so, family, that you're willing to lose your life. You're willing to give up your own personal comforts, right? You're willing to make a sacrifice of your time, your talents, your treasure, your money, right? To serve God. What does that look like in your life? Think about it. Okay, this is a very practical uh, uh, illustration from the Thessalonian church. Okay, they were willing to go out and preach the gospel in the face of much opposition. Okay, so this is our constant pursuit and it and what it means to follow Jesus. It is to live a life mimicking our Lord and living lives of love as he did, as it says in Ephesians 5. One and two, therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And here again, Paul's telling uh, Christians in in, uh, Ephesus, he says, look, be imitators of God. How do you do that? He says, look, walk in love, right? Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. He says, be a people of love. How do you give your life in selfless sacrifice as a Christian? You love people. You just love people. Your life needs to be an example of love to others. Amen? I mean, is this not chief among the commandments of Christ? That we love one another. Amen? And this is what it means to be an imitator of God. Think about how Jesus loved us. So much so that he's willing to take his own life and give it in sacrifice for our rebellion. Right? And then how Paul is an example of this love. How Paul has given up everything he has to go out into this hostile world and preach this gospel and live his life for some 20, 30, maybe more years. Right? In all of that hostility, giving his life in selfless sacrifice for the rest of the church, so that they can hear the glorious message of the gospel. Amen? What loving service on the part of Paul. 
right? Well, <clears throat> he says here also that they became imitators of the apostles and the Lord. He says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's, he's talking uniquely here about how they were imitators of the apostles. Okay, so think about it. Here's the apostles, right? And I mean, from city to city. Every place they land, you know, they land and start preaching the gospel as long as their uh, life will allow it, right? Because it's not long before somebody gets hostile over the message that they're preaching and runs them out of town, right? Or beats them up and leaves them half dead outside the city or, you know, all of the things that kept happening to them all along the way, all along the way. Listen, let me tell you, they never found a place where they could park and call it home. That's how much hostility their, their message brought, okay? They never found a place where they, they could just comfortably come on in and preach the gospel because it wasn't, it wasn't long before that that uh, every demon in hell came out of the woodwork looking to take their life, right? You understand? The Christian message is a message that brings hostility to, to a godless world. And the more and more our culture becomes godless, <laughs> the more and more hostility we're going to experience. That is if we're preaching the true gospel. Amen? Of course, if you can't decode it, right, then everybody thinks it tastes good. Right? Sorry, I won't go there. I don't want to chase it. I will go there, but, but just not quite yet. Okay, then. So, <clears throat> consider here... The amazing example of these Thessalonians who not only turned their back on their idols, but became powerful spreaders of the word of God in their entire province and the surrounding areas in just a few short months. They truly had become imitators of these blessed apostles. This was clear by the powerful work the word did in their hearts, having received the word in much tribulation as these Christians endured much persecution for their newfound faith. The same hostility which had run Paul out of town was now upon them daily as they were being severely persecuted, which is indicated by Paul's describing it as much tribulation. You know, he didn't say, you know, you Thessalonians, you know, you kind of had it rough. That's not what, how he described their situation, right? He said that they were in much tribulation, and, uh, you know, for Paul to say that somebody's in much tribulation, man, they must be facing some pretty difficult circumstances. Are you with me? Because Paul knows what much tribulation is. And uh, it's notable. And, and this is one of the reasons. Actually, there are plenty of verses in these two letters that tell us that the Thessalonians were in, enduring severe persecution. Uh, but this is one of the first mentions of it where Paul himself actually calls it much tribulation. The picture here is not only had they received the word in much tribulation, but now they were taking it to every place around them because they had received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, you became imitators of us, right? Having received the word in much tribulation, but listen, with much joy. You see, even though they were being persecuted, right, the message came with joy, right? The very thing that we're all seeking for naturally, in our natural selves, we're in a pursuit of joy, are we not? 
And, and, and when we hear the message of the gospel and we're born again by the Spirit of God, this joy that we've been searching for our whole life long finally arrives. Amen? And it arrives in the deepest part of our soul. It arrives in, in, with such contentment and fulfillment in our hearts. Amen? And even so, that uh, we're willing to now uh, endure hostilities. We're willing to endure persecutions, if it will. Right? Just to express the message of this joy. And so we get this picture of the Thessalonian church. They were glad. Listen, they were glad to serve God in this way. Because the gospel came to them with the supernatural power of inner joy that accompanies all true conversions. You know, the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. And on down the line, right? Joy, family, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You lacking joy in your heart? Well, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't content to live there. Amen? Amen. Maybe we need to rend our hearts a bit. Maybe there needs to be a bit of mourning over sin and a bit of repentance turning our back on things that tend to displease God. Amen? so that he might be pleased to live there in fullness and with much joy. Amen? Just like these Thessalonians did. They turned their back on their pagan idols. And you know what? God came to live in their hearts with much joy. So much joy that they went out and spread the message to their whole world. You with me? These people had joy. Let me tell you. Joy is the sweet fruit of the Spirit which seasons our new life with satisfaction and delight in our blessed Lord to such a degree that we are willing to follow him no matter the cost, even if it is to a martyr's death. Amen? Tell me how many Christians are written in the annals of history, ready to be burned at the stake for the joy that is set before them, for the steadfast hope that they have, that they possess eternal life, and that even though you kill this body, Right? God's promise still abides. I'm going to live forever. Right? And this is the testimony of every Christian. We know this. We know this to be true. I know that I know that I know that if you kill this body, I'm passing into glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, and this is the conviction that we have. So much so, it will take us to a martyr's death if that be God's will for us. Amen? And this has been proven again and again and again down through history. So then, they had become the children of God to their great delight, and they were so happy and fulfilled that they couldn't keep quiet about it. But as is many times the case, Christian joy over the good news of the gospel is met with much persecution and suffering. Evangelical Christians have long been the objects of suffering because people do not like being told that they are at enmity with Almighty God and in danger of his coming judgment. And they don't like being told that their false religion is worthless in the sight of a holy God who has provided the only and exclusive way to be saved through the death of a Jew, namely Jesus Christ. (laughs) You understand? That's a hostile message. The gospel is an offense to the soul of man because it has a big long bony finger that says you are a sinner you are under the condemnation of a holy God who is soon going to judge you with wrath eternal if you do not repent 
That's the bad news of the gospel. Amen. And the first word of the gospel is repent. Turn your back on your sin. Right. (laughs) Are you with me? Well, that's a message that engenders much hostility. And evangelical Christians down through the ages have always received that hostility when they preach the true gospel. I mean, think about what we're saying. A Jew had to die for you. Right? Now, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a racist. Never have been. Praise God. At least to my knowledge, <laughs> I'm not a racist. Okay? I, I love people of every color, of every ethnicity, of every class. I'm, I, don't, I don't separate myself from other men in that way. I thank God that somehow in my upbringing, those kinds of tensions weren't put into my mind. At least if they're there, I'm not aware of them. Okay? (laughs) But many people are. And to many people, this is a very offensive idea that a Jew would have to die in their place. You understand? A lot of people in the world hate Jews. Did you know that? (laughs) Read a little bit of history. Right? They've been they've been hating the Jews as long as there's been Jews. It's not it's not just a thing that happened after Christ. Let me tell you. Some fifteen hundred years before that, there was a lot of Jew haters in the world. Right? For a lot of different reasons too. Uh but nevertheless, you have to understand this is an offensive message to a lot of people. And not just that part of it. But just the whole idea that, listen, we're telling people that they're under the condemnation and wrath of a holy God. And that if they don't repent, they're going to be judged by God. Okay? That really gets close to home when you start talking about people's personal sins. Okay? People don't want anybody correcting them or telling them that they need to change their lifestyle. Right? We live in such an autonomous culture. Right? that everybody wants to be free to do whatever they want to do, right? And they don't want to be held accountable for their actions regardless of what they are. Amen? Well, sorry, if you're a Christian preaching the gospel, let me tell you, that's going to engender some hostilities. Right? And that's one of the reasons why we need courage to preach it. (laughs) We need courage to overcome what? The opposition that people feel when we tell them these things. Amen? They're liable to grab you by your hair and drag you outside and beat you up if you have hair. (laughs) Okay. So then, this bad news of the gospel engenders much opposition and vehement hatred at times, which has spilled the blood of the martyrs for centuries and made Christians the subject of much affliction and slander and reviling. But family, this is what our Lord told us the case would be. For example, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Right? Let me tell you, big billboard here. Guess what? Not everybody loves Jesus. As a matter of fact, the more they learn about Jesus, the more they dislike him. Are you with me? I mean, everybody loves gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Right? 
But few people love Jesus the prophet who's warning them of the coming doom. Are you with me? For which he got hung on a cross. You understand how it went for him? They didn't like what he had to say. So you know what they did to him, right? He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Now, what's the name? What's the word for church? Somebody tell me. The called out ones, right? Ecclesia, the Greek, right? The called out ones, right? He says, look, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, right? But you're not of the world. What? I have chosen you out of the world, right? Therefore, the world hates you, right? Do you know that one of the terms for Christians in the New Testament is the word saints, right? The saints. Do you know what the Greek for saints is? It's the word hagios. You know what the word hagios means? Holy ones. Okay? And do you know that the root meaning of the word holy is to set apart? So so that, if you will, Israel was God's holy people. Why was that? Because God took Israel, he called them out of the nations of the world, and he set them apart as his own nation. And he set his favor on them. And he said, these are my people. Okay, and so he does with the church. Listen, he calls us out of the world and he sets us apart from the world. And Jesus says here, therefore, the world hates you. Why? Because you're set apart. You're not like them. You don't plunge into dissipation and drunkenness and immorality and murder and violence and hatred and idolatry. You don't plunge yourself into all those things with the world. Right? Therefore, the world hates you. You're set apart. Remember the word I said to you, verse 20. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Listen, here's Jesus promising us we're going to be persecuted. Why? Because the world hates us. Beware, he said, when all men speak well of you. Amen? Amen. Are you with me? Don't be afraid to step on people's toes when you tell them the gospel. They need their toes stepped on. Okay? Now, try to do it with gentleness. Try to do it with respect and reverence. Okay? But, you know, this bad news of the gospel, that is, you're under the condemnation of a holy God, it's just not easy to tell anybody especially somebody whose life is a slave to sin. Amen? You with me? Okay then. So consider that without this bad news, that is the coming judgment of God because of personal sins, there is no reason for the good news of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross for sins and the forgiveness which God now gives for personal sins to all who trust and what Christ has done to save them. If people don't understand sin and judgment, they will not understand the need. Uh, they will not understand the need for salvation from God's wrath because of sin. You know, listen. The the, the gospel isn't God loves you and has a plan for your life. 
Okay, now, family, that's part of the gospel. Okay, it's part of the gospel, but that's not the essential message. The essential message is what? The cross. Jesus died on the cross. Now, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, because there's a big problem. There's a big blaring problem with the world of mankind. We're fallen into sin and death. Amen? We're all headed for the grave. The death rate is one per person. Right? It's been that way as long as we've been recording history. We can't even get along together. Right? What do we do? We rise up and kill our brother, Cain. Kills his brother, Abel. Right? And we've been following in his footsteps ever since. Right? And murder and violence and, 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 and wickedness and immorality is all around us. It's infected all the cultures of the world. It's always been there as long as they've been recording history. We got a big whopping problem. It's called sin. Amen? The essential, essential message of the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for sins for all who will trust him and believe in what he has done. And through that trust and through that faith, he promises to give us life beyond the grave so that we're not subject to the consequences of sin anymore, which is death. Amen? Let me tell you, that's the essential message of the gospel. Included in that is when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God sets his love upon you and fills your life with blessing and has good designs for your life. Amen? So then. <clears throat> we need to understand that the primary problem is sin and judgment. And that's why you can't just tell people that Jesus loves them and has a good plan for their life. They have to understand that the way to be reconciled to God is to recognize their great sins before God and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can pay the penalty for their sins, Right? And it's through that ministry of that revelation from God and trust in Christ that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them and changes them. It's a mystery, this whole thing that happens in time and space when somebody gets born again. But the fact of the matter is, family, the gospel that comes to us in word is a gospel about God's judgment and God's provision for his own judgment in Christ. And that's how people get saved. They believe this gospel. Well, I'm out of time. I better stop. So then, would you pray with me? God, our Father, oh Lord, these truths are amazing. And um, I pray for each and every one that is within the hearing of my voice. That God, that surely they have received the gospel with power and with full conviction. So much so, Lord, that their life has been changed. God, if any have not come to that place where they have surrendered their will to yours. I pray now, Lord, that you would grant them the faith. God, that you would open their eyes to see their great need. And Lord, that they would know that the work is yours, that God, whatever they give up, that, that you supply a hundredfold in joy. I pray, Father, that all of us would be encouraged to look beyond the grave and to walk in your presence every day.
with a hope that is steadfast, looking forward to our coming redemption of our bodies. I pray, Lord, that we would be propelled to live beyond the daily circumstances of our life and to live in the glory of your kingdom. I pray that we would come to know and understand what that means and that, Lord, we would be an army of gospel ministers. Oh, Lord, change our hearts. Give us the courage that these Thessalonians had. Put the message of the good news of the gospel in our mouths and God, give us a supernatural ability to explain it to others. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, would just cause us to long to live this life of love more and more as time goes on, that you would show us opportunities how we can love others around us, and that, uh, God, you would help us cause our faith to be strengthened. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this rich section of text in your word. I pray that as the week goes on, we would meditate and consider it. And, Lord, that we would consider it a personal challenge to our own faith so that, Lord, we could be like this model church, this Thessalonian church, that we could pattern our lives after them. God, help us to be uh, people to the praise of the glory of your grace. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.